what that night uh, must have been like, that night that's hailed in the scriptures as, as a moment of great joy, as a moment when the love of God is, is expressed to us, uh, a moment that brings hope to, to us even today now, 2,000 years later. And as we just sang and as we'll spend our time reflecting on over the next few moments, it, it's also a moment that is announced as, as a moment of great peace. I'm really grateful that you're here today. I'm grateful for the time that we've been able to, to share uh, in worship already. Uh, Joe already mentioned it. We have many uh, guests, many who are here uh, that, that we had a chance to say hello to beforehand. Uh, we're certainly grateful for Andrea and uh, our friends from 305 8th Street as well. Grateful they could be here and worship with us. And now we, we, we come to this, this point where we kind of center our, our hearts and our minds on, on what God's Word has to say to us. Uh, the YouVersion Bible app, it is the most popular Bible app in the world. It's been downloaded over 400 million times. It offers over 2,000 versions of the Bible in 1,351 different languages. Just quick show of hands, how many of you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, okay? Or your phone, your, your iPad, your, you know, whatever your, your device might be. As I said, it is the most popular Bible app in the world. And each year what YouVersion does at this time of year, they will release... Um, They'll release one passage of scripture that over the last 12 months has been the most popular, the most highlighted, the most shared passage of scripture for that particular year worldwide. And I want to show you these passages of scripture from the last couple of years, okay? And you, you be thinking, you kind of be looking for some sort of commonality in these passages of scripture, okay? So in 2017, the, the most highlighted passage of Scripture, according to YouVersion, uh, was this passage of Scripture from Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Beautiful promise that God makes to Joshua, and it was highlighted more than any other in 2017. The next year, 2018, it's Isaiah chapter 41. But again, I want you to hear this. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. And now this year, 2019, according to version, the most popular, the most highlighted, the most shared passage of Scripture among their you know, hundreds of millions of users is this passage from Philippians chapter 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So again, what's the common thread in these passages of Scripture? As you look at those, as you reflect, okay, what is it that makes those three uh, so popular in the reading of, of Bible readers around the world? What's the commonality? Well, you'll notice that in all three, the one and two kind of share a commonality where God promises to be present, but all three of them speak to our fears and our worries and our anxieties, don't they? 
All three of those passages of Scripture speak to a common experience that believers experience around the globe, and that's this experience of, of, of worry and concern and anxiety. I think it's telling that these are the most highlighted passages of Scripture for people today. It tells us that worry and anxiety and fear are universal. That no matter where you live and no matter your circumstances, you'll probably find something to worry about, something to be anxious about, something that will scare you greatly. But even more importantly than that, what, what I find really telling about these three passages of Scripture and their popularity is the fact that there is this common assertion that when we turn to God's word, we can find a word from God that speaks directly into those fears and those anxieties and those worries. And if these scriptures and the, the number of times they've been shared are any kind of indication, it also tells me that when we gather here today, as we do, that we come bringing, very likely, a lot of worry. That we come bearing anxiety. That there's some kind of fear that might be just gripping and paralyzing your heart today. It tells me that as we gather here together for worship, we come seeking some sort of answer, some word of comfort. Will God speak a word to us directly where we are today in those fears and anxieties? And the biblical word for what we're looking for, the biblical word for that is peace. And so for the last several weeks, as Leah's already said, we've been talking about the gifts that we receive in Christ Jesus. A lot of talk about gifts these days. It's probably on your mind if you haven't finished up your, your Christmas shopping, right? Uh, maybe you're one of those people who sat on the parkway yesterday, backed up all the way to Governor's Drive, trying to make it around to get into the Parkway Place Mall. Or maybe you're, you're checking furiously to find out if those Amazon packages are really going to make it, you know, by December 24th or whenever the family gets here. You know, the gifts that we give and receive, those are on our mind right now. But what we've wanted to do for the last several weeks is to talk about the gifts we receive in Christ Jesus. So again, we've been talking about things like hope and even if faith. Right? The future tense of faith. We've been talking about love, the love that God expresses to us in Christ Jesus, where he just says, I love you because you're mine, because I created you, because I want relationship with you. We talked about, we talked about uh, joy as something that, that we experience when we put our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ, that joy and hope are so intrinsically linked. And now today we come to this last of these gifts, this gift of peace. Last week we looked at Luke's gospel and the, the story that he tells of that beautiful silent night that we just sang about. That night when those, those angels appeared to these shepherds outside Bethlehem. And this one angel of the Lord says to the, to the shepherds that he comes to bring good news of great joy for all people. And then following that announcement, we come to this passage in uh, Luke 2, verse 14, where an entire host of angels appears surrounding that angel of the Lord. And they begin to sing praises to God for what he's about to do in the birth of this child. And in verse 14, these beautiful words, glory to God 
in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So we see here as we finish this up that the birth of Jesus is not just hailed as this moment of great joy, although it certainly is, but the angels themselves praise God for the peace that he is bringing into the world in the birth of this child, the birth of his son. And this is the final gift we're reflecting on, the gift of peace. God is definitely up to something in the birth of this child. Because in in the birth of this child, God is setting out to resolve that which is the greatest barrier to peace with him. And that is our sin. We're conditioned to think about peace in a particular way. We're conditioned to think about peace as, as the absence of conflict, you know? And maybe that has to do with the times we live in. Maybe it has to do with our, our association with the uh, military-industrial complex. I don't know what it has to do with, but we, we think of peace as like, okay, it's, it's when things aren't bad. It's when there's not war and when there's not conflict. And that, that's certainly one way of thinking about peace, but the biblical definition of peace is so much more than that because it's not just a description of how things aren't. It's not just saying, hey, there's this absence of something. But the biblical definition of peace describes the active presence of right relationship. It's defined by this ancient Hebrew word, shalom. Everybody say, shalom. Shalom means right relationship with God and with others and with creation itself. So in the ancient Jewish practice, this was a word of greeting. It was a word of blessing. It was what you wished upon, uh, you know, your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones. It was the the highest possible blessing that could be conferred upon, upon your brother. You would wish him shalom. You would wish him peace. You would want for him or for her to have right standing with God. You would want for him or her to have right standing with others. And you would want for him or her to have right standing in relationship to all creation. The biblical story begins with shalom. So all the way back there in Genesis, God creates a world that is filled with shalom. It's a world where things are right. Another way to describe shalom is to say it's, it's rightness, okay? It's, it's the world that we find in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where things are exactly the way God intended them to be. That's shalom. Things were right and things were good. And God looks at that creation and he, and he, and he calls it that. He says, this is good. And he makes man and he says, that, you know, man and woman, that's, that's very good. And so there's this shalom, there's this rightness, there's this sense in which things are living with integrity living in the way in which God intended for them to live all along. But then pretty quickly in the biblical story, that shalom is broken through willful disobedience, through sin. Sin always ruptures what God intends. And so in the biblical story, as sin enters into the world, what happens to the shalom is that the shalom is broken. The shalom is disrupted. And in Genesis 3, you read about that. And what is is replacing the shalom is now enmity. There's enmity between us and creation. There's enmity between brother and sister, brother and brother. And there's enmity now because of sin between God and his very own image bearers. That's the consequence of sin. And so the biblical story says it started with shalom, it started with peace, and then pretty quickly 
things got broken. But the rest of the biblical narrative then shifts into this, this focus upon God who sets out to make things right, to restore the shalom, to, to, to get to work making rightness a reality once more. And so as you read through in the biblical story, what happens is God initiates a relationship with a man named Abraham. And he comes to, to Abraham and God says, you know, here's what I'm going to do to restore the shalom, to restore, restore the peace, to make things right once again, I'm going to make promises. And I'm going to be faithful to those promises. Because that's how I'm going to choose to undo the effects of sin. I'm going to restore shalom by making promises. So he makes covenant promises to Abraham. You read all about those in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And so when God comes to Abraham, he says, you know, I, I've chosen you and I'm going to bless you. But here's the thing, okay? He doesn't bless Abraham just because he likes him more than anybody else. He doesn't bless Abraham because he loves Abraham more than anybody else. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to make covenant promises to you so that through those blessings and through those promises and through that covenantal faithfulness, I'm going to bless, you can read about this in Genesis 12, okay? I'm going to bless the whole world. Because through your line and through these promises and through my faithfulness, I'm going to make things right again. I'm going to get my shalom back. Right? And so... God blesses Abraham, and he works through Abraham and, and, and his people, and he promises to bring one someday who's going to do all that. He's going to set it all right. He's going to put it all back together again, you know, undo the Humpty Dumpty broken pieces of the world that we created. And Israel's relationship with God, if you read through the story, it kind of goes like a roller coaster, you know? It goes up and down and up and down. There are times when they experience a little foretaste of that shalom, they feel a little bit of that peace when they're living in covenantal faithfulness with God. God's faithfulness never changes. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans and Galatians, throughout the New Testament. The whole Bible is a story of his faithfulness. So he's always like up here keeping his promises. And when Israel is keeping her promises and they come a little closer to the, to the God who keeps his promises, that's when they begin to experience some of that shalom. They begin to feel that in certain pockets, in certain moments in their history. But there are other times when they are disobedient to the covenant, when Israel doesn't keep her promises and they drift away from God and that shalom that they experience just like a little foretaste of, man, it, it begins to fall apart once again. And that story resonates with us. If we really, really hear it, that story resonates with us. Because our stories are so similar, right? Right? Because there are moments when we're walking in obedience. We're walking in like trusting obedience with, with God. And we feel just a little, bit of that, a little bit of that peace. We get like a little foretaste, a little glimpse of what it's going to be like when his shalom rules and reigns for all time, forever and ever and ever. We get like a, just a little glimpse of that. But then we also know what it's like when we break our end of the promise, when we walk away from that covenant, when we live in unfaithfulness to what God has called us to, then it brings disorder, and sin continues its work of corrupting and tearing apart. And so, in this story, we come to that night outside Bethlehem, and these angels announce 
that God has kept his promise. He's done what he said he was going to do. He sent our deliverer. He sent our Savior. He sent his own son, Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus is going to restore that shalom. He's going to restore God's rightness by atoning for our sin. Because it says, as it says in Acts and Ephesians, his gospel, his good news is peace. It's shalom. So when we trust in this work of Jesus, we experience the peace that he came to bring. Peace in a sense of comfort that speaks to, you know, our anxieties and our fears and our worries. That's, that's true. But even more deeply, it's peace that flows from a right relationship, from right standing with God. So I want to go back to that, that passage, the, the one that's the most highlighted from, from 2019, okay? Philippians chapter 4. And I want you to see the very next verse, the next part of Paul's thought, because you really can't have verse 6 without verse 7. You know, it's kind of like a package deal, you know, like peanut butter and jelly. You know, you got to have both of these to come together to really kind of get the sense of what Paul says. So, so here it is, okay, you can turn your Bibles if you want to, or use version and go there. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7, okay, so we're, we're here again. Do not be anxious about anything, right, and in every situation, by prayer and, and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and now this part. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul has a big idea here that I find to be fascinating, okay? It really challenges our view of peace as like absence of conflict. No, no, no. Paul's saying peace is active and it does something. The peace of God, he says, stands guard against our fears. It's the way that God plays defense against the weapon of Satan that we call anxiety and worry and fear. It is the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds. God has this deep experience in store for his people. Again, it's shalom, it's rightness, okay? It's this, this experience of deep and abiding peace that Jesus himself talks about. And so when Paul says here, you know, don't be anxious about anything, in the context uh, for, for these believers in Philippi, there's a real specific focus there. What was prompting their anxiety was probably a lot of opposition to the fact that they said Jesus Christ was the king. In a world that says Caesar is king, these people declare something absolutely crazy in the minds of other people. They say, no, 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 Caesar is nothing. The real king of all things is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And you read in Acts, you see how Paul and Silas were opposed. That is not a popular message. It does not go down well. So people oppose Paul and Silas. They throw them in jail. You get that whole Philippian jailer story there, okay? These are the same people. Like, they experienced that, and they saw that. And so Paul and Silas, they move on down the road. These people have to live there. And so they're facing opposition. But even in that context, Paul says, man, don't let that anxiety get the best of you. And for us today, whatever it is that, that anxiety is kind of like welling up for us, I don't know what it might be, if it's related to you, you trying to live out your, your faith in a world like ours today, or if it's just kind of run-of-the-mill anxiety, whatever it might be, Paul's word is still the same. God's word is still the same. Don't let that stuff get the best of you. Because what Jesus has in store, the king who restores the shalom to all creation, he wants to set up a barrier. He wants to play a little defense on your heart and your mind until Satan 
that he can take all his anxiety and all of his worry and all of his fear and he can just get up out of here because it has no place in our hearts and our minds because we instead experience the peace of God that is transcendent. The reason for that, he says, is that the, the peace of God guards our hearts and that word guard in the ancient world, that particular Greek word, it was often used to describe, it was like a military term, it was often used to describe the action of a military garrison that was set up inside of a city. It, it, it describes like the work of, of a military battalion set up inside the city to provide defense. And that's the exact same way Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So the idea here is that peace, the peace that Jesus brings is far more than simply the absence of conflict. Instead, the peace we receive in Jesus is an active defense against our tendency toward anxiety and fear. Jesus says something similar over in Matthew chapter 6. He says, seek first the kingdom. The kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things are going to be added to you. Therefore, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. Because tomorrow has enough anxiety for itself. Jesus wouldn't have us worrying all the time. Because worry runs contrary to the peace that he provides. Instead, he wants to guard our hearts with the peace of his kingdom. Maybe you've heard this before, worry is kind of like a treadmill, you know? It's a lot of, lot of energy expended, a lot of movement, but you get off the treadmill, you haven't really gone anywhere, you know? Where that breaks down is that a treadmill is actually good for you, <laughs> you know? That actually has some benefit to your life. Worry? Name one thing worry does for the kingdom of God. Name one thing worry does for your soul. I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't be concerned about certain things, but to let that paralyze us and grip our hearts, you know? Years ago, Gary and I were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and he preached from this passage. I was sitting right in here somewhere, and he said something that I wrote down in the column of my Bible. He said, if worry would do us any good, don't you think the Lord would tell us to do it? It's a pretty good line. That's why I wrote it down, you know? And that's so true, right? If worry would do us any amount of good, then Jesus would say, well, you know, there are times when you probably ought to worry because then, you know, the benefits, but he doesn't. Instead, he calls us to trust in his peace that guards our hearts. And ultimately, peace works its way back to that idea of contentment that we talked about a few weeks ago. We talked about this just before Thanksgiving. And we looked at this passage from Philippians 4, where Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. And we said contentment isn't something that you find. No, it's, it's something that you learn. But contentment, true biblical contentment, is the result of trusting in what God has done through Jesus, which produces peace. So when we trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ, that's when we experience this peace that he longs to bring. And then when we live in peace, that's when we learn contentment. My grandmother on my mom's side lived to be about 96 years old, I think. Grandmother Armstrong is what I called her. Uh, we went to visit her, my children and I, Sonny and I, we went to go visit her a few weeks before she passed away. And she said something to me that day that I also wrote down in the column of my Bible. 
I guess this sermon is an advertisement for writing notes in the column of your Bible, okay? But she said something to me on this passage of Scripture. She said at the age of 96, she said, I finally learned to be content. Contentment's not something that you, that you find. It's something that you have to learn. And even at the age of 96, <laughs> she said, okay, I finally think I've learned this. Staring down the barrel of the end of her life. I like to think she was speaking out of the peace of God that Paul says here transcends our understanding. In order to make peace possible, Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem. You know what Jerusalem means? It literally means city of peace. And that's the irony of the Jesus story because when he makes it to Jerusalem, he doesn't find a whole lot of peace. Instead, he finds bloodshed. And that triumphal entry, it might have been really, really promising, but Jesus always knows what's coming at the end of that week. At the end of that week, there's going to be a cross. But he endured that for the joy that was set before him. He endured this in order to make peace possible, to remove our sin so that we might have a restored relationship with God so that he could bring shalom to us. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, this morning, I'd like to read from Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. If you're helping serve the Lord's Supper today, you can go and get ready while we reflect here. I'm going to read from Mark 15. If you'd like to turn in your Bible, you can. Mark 15, 22 through 39, and then we'll pray. Here's God's word. Mark 15, 22, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran, uh, ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, 
this man was the son of God. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, we bow as a family. We come around the table of our Lord. We come with heavy hearts because we understand the weight of our sin. We come in a spirit of repentance, Father. We come turning away, renouncing those idols that we have freely bowed down before. We come, Father, sorrowful for the sin that is in our our lives. Many of us replay the things that have happened over the last week, God, and we are, we are sorry for the ways that we have hurt you, for the ways that we have ruptured the shalom that you want with us. Father, we're sorry for the ways that we have impaired our relationships with others and disrupted that shalom. Father, we're sorry for the ways that we just contribute to the chaos and evil in our world and disrupt the shalom of your creation. Father, we are sorrowful. But God, we are also grateful that through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that you bring hope, that you bring love, that you bring joy, especially now in this moment, God, we're grateful that you bring us peace. Thank you for giving us the opportunity for right standing with you. This we celebrate in this moment. We pray through Jesus. Amen. pray again. And Father, now as we gather around um, this table once more, Father, we are we're grateful and we are joyful and we are sorrowful. Lord God, as we 
as we read about the way in which our Savior was reviled, Lord. It breaks our hearts, it hurts. But Lord God, we find encouragement even here through the power of your word because we know that Jesus endured this for joy that was set before him. Lord God, what a thought, what a Savior. So Father, today we celebrate that. We commemorate and we grieve the cost of our sin. Lord, we celebrate the power of your good news that sets us free, that, that provides the peace of right relationship with you once more. So for this cup now and this hour as a family, we say thank you to you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses about peace is a, a promise. It's found in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It doesn't sound very peaceful uh, the first time you hear it, you know, God crushing Satan under our feet, you know. But that verse takes us all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the sin of Adam and Eve, and God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. In Jesus, God has secured for us a victory. It is a victory over sin, over Satan himself. And in order to make peace possible, Jesus had to enter into the fight. He had to take on the forces of darkness and the full weight of sin. The Bible tells us that he was victorious, and we celebrate that victory today. It's the victory that was authenticated on that beautiful, glorious resurrection Sunday morning. It's the victory that gives us peace, because as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace. You need to give your life over to him today and experience the power of that peace. If so, then my prayer would be that... um, In these next few moments, you would hear the urging of God, the prompting of God, because the power of his word, I think, calls us to want that which he so freely gives. Maybe you're lacking some of that shalom. Maybe worry and anxiety and fear has gotten the best of you. Maybe today you'd like to share with us ways we can be helping to pray for you. Maybe there's something on your heart you just want the church family to know about and be praying about. You can share that with us as well in these next few moments if you like know this that this word of shalom is given in the name of jesus christ the sovereign lord who makes all things new he who has ears let him hear let's stand together now